0: What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra we drop these in between our full episodes. Of course, those of you who've been riding with us for a minute know that our full episodes have super dope guests and a look at multiple headlines and some shout outs during our class dismiss section at the end and there's a lot that goes into that and that is a video show that we also throw on the podcast streaming apps. So in between those, which take a while to edit, we drop these passing periods. So if you are brand new to all of the above, know that these passing periods are just Jeff and myself. Manuel Reston, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And we use these as an opportunity to talk about some stories and some things that maybe didn't make it into our most recent full episode. And that most recent full episode, um, Jeff, I don't know if you you realize this, but that um, tracking conversation is... Uh, a big one. We had a, a a lot of folks with a lot of opinions on that on that whole tracking situation. And folks, if you missed that, you definitely want to go back and tune in. That was featuring Dr. Eric Toshalis, and man, he really he really set fire to all those arguments for or all those arguments in favor of gate and advanced and AP and all that stuff. So definitely uh, tune in. And you know, uh, in, in case you missed it, Jeff, uh, I I believe. To describe himself as a, a conservative, uh, a, a right winger in the conversation around tracking, if I am uh, re- calling that correctly, a true uh, Republican in that sense. So, yeah, you don't want to miss that. Did I get that right, Jeff? I think uh, more or less something like that. See... I think we have a few attorneys
1: out there who listen to all the above, and I'm going to need y'all to like hit me in the DMs because I don't know what the slander uh, rules are here and how that pertains since this is officially a media outlet. But I believe that I was just uh, just slandered, sullied. My name was dragged through the mud by my by my former friend and co host, Dr. Manuel Rusted, just now, and I got witnesses. I okay, just, I thought
0: you I thought you used the term conservative in there somewhere, uh, and I'm just trying to trying to recall exactly what the framing was. Uh you know,
1: I did, I did actually. In fairness, uh, when I posted about the episode, I was like, it, you know, I find myself having a more conservative dare i say <laughs> conservative perspective on this issue than our guest and uh it was actually really interesting to engage with people online about this man cuz we we had folks like uh you know uh a uh, two-time guest on all the above uh Joe Truss someone who i think a lot of folks out there know who's um you know leads the Dismantling White Supremacy Culture Conference annually um and you know who who got at me like hey man it's time to give up that privilege and like you know get down with the struggle uh he did those weren't his exact words but something to that effect and uh you know it really this it's one of those issues where i'm like i i want to believe and i also feel like we can't implement this well in a way that that wouldn't hurt students like myself to be honest um, and so, you know, I'm here for the like, let's not just let all the rich white people make their own little private enclaves with public dollars, like 100% here for that. But, you know, get rid of all tracking to me feels like developmentally, we like extremely difficult to implement well. And, and I we're not there yet as a system, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and anybody who's had like a birthday party with 10 kids knows that it's real hard to differentiate <laughs> even fun stuff for those 10 kids, let alone teaching them how to spell or do algebra or something. Right. So, um, I don't, you know, I remain conflicted on that issue. All I right, will all say.
0: Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Shout out to Dr. Eric Tashalis for joining us on that episode and, um, yeah, man. Yeah, definitely interested in hearing more folks' thoughts. And we did receive an email from a listener, and the subject line for the email was AOTA Juvenile Court Schools Report. And those of you who listened to the episode know that we, during our Do Now segment, we talked about a report about the quality or lack of quality of um, classroom instruction in Los Angeles County ju- juvenile facilities. So when we... when I Looked at this email. I was thinking, oh, man, we we missed something. We messed up somewhere because, of course, we are full time educators, Jeff, and we don't necessarily have the time to fully like investigate on our own or visit on our own or anything like that. So when I saw the subject line, I was thinking, oh, man, this person is probably going to, you know, chastise us for not having a a voice representing those uh, those educators in the juvenile court system and, and you know, saying that we misre- misrepresented or something like, I don't know. I just kind of expected something like that. I don't know why. I just kind of did. And then I opened it up and uh, much much to my surprise, it was from an avid listener of all of the above. So AOTA family, shout out to this individual. I'm not going to reveal details about this individual because this is somebody who does work in those schools, does work in those juvenile court schools, and I don't want to put this person on blast in that sense. But they did say in their email that the report about the schools inside these juvenile facilities is, quote, 100% accurate, end quote. Um, This person said basically that that report, which the county superintendent said was just like made up of speculation and conjecture this person said, look, I've been teaching in these schools and I'm passionate about it. I love it. I love the students and we do our best, but yeah, they are lacking in some very big ways. So shout out to this listener for uh, sharing their perspective about being in those or working in those schools. And um, yeah, man, just, I, I'm always, always game for a email that is showing some love and appreciation because sometimes, sometimes the comments sections under our YouTube videos tend not to be very loving or anything like that. So shout out to this person for tuning in and uh, also uh giving us uh, their their in person, first person perspective of um that particular issue there. So yeah. Oh and they also said they are big time D tracking fans. So shout out shout out to y'all y'all D tracking folks too.
1: Yeah, I think uh I think Manuel if you're looking for love in the YouTube comments the you are lo- looking for love in all the wrong places. That is correct. Okay. That is correct, man. Uh, <laughs> ain't ain't nothing happening there that is good for the soul. Um but yeah, definitely want to echo your uh your props to that particular um, member of the the larger AOTA family. Um and you know, that is an issue, Manuel, that I, I think we should try to figure out a way to explore more deeply. So we might have to find a good guest for one of our seminars, someone who can really speak about education—it might be one of the few contexts of education that, like, we really haven't talked about hardly at all, right? Um, you know, this this idea that we have schools across the country operating with youth in incarcerated uh, settings, and frankly, we have schools or educational settings for adults in incarcerated uh, settings as well. So may, maybe that's a, a good topic for us to. Add to the list of things to go a little more deeply on in the future.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And uh, before we get into today's story, folks, just a quick reminder, those um, reviews go a very long way. So definitely, if you haven't given us that fi- uh, five-star review or written up a little testimonial for our Apple podcast or whatever, we definitely very much would appreciate it. I do want to uh, read one review that we received uh, about a month or two ago uh, from Colibri AZ, so somebody in Arizona, I presume, and they just said, I love AOTA, it's informative and engaging. Love hearing Manuel well and Jeff's perspective and the super dope guests they feature. Thank you very much. So shout out to you, AOTA family member and everybody else that's taking a moment out to leave a little review for us. We are just a two person operation here, two full-time educators doing what we do to put this together. And Jeff also, I am now officially, officially on spring break and about to nice, about to nice. head up out of here in a couple hours, well, tonight. Um, My wife and I are going to do some traveling and, you know, shout out to anybody out there who is also on, on spring break and, and um, hopefully enjoying whatever kind of rest they can, they can get, man. So, so Jeff, it's the weekend, it's. Officially April, we are no longer on April Fool's uh, Day. So it was nice. I didn't actually have class on April Fool's Day. Our our school was um, closed for observance of Cesar Chavez Day. So that was nice not having to deal with any April tomfoolery. So Jeff, what do we have? (laughs) What do we have for today's passing period on this uh, first weekend of April?
1: yeah manuel uh we got a fascinating discussion today and um for for folks in Los Angeles or Southern California, you may have seen uh the headlines in the l a times uh this week uh from march thirty first Um, that we're going to dig into. For folks nationally, uh, let me read it to you. So March 31st, the LA Times, kind of big, bold, news alert on your phone uh, piece of education that went out, uh, written by uh, Paloma Esquivel. So shout out to uh, Paloma. Uh, But the headline, which I'm sure Paloma Probably didn't actually have control over. It's probably an editor at the Times who, uh, who made this decision. But the headline reads, Nearly half of LAUSD students have been chronically absent this year, data show. Now, um, I don't know how the algorithms exactly work, Manuel, but I have alerts on my phone from the L.A. Times because, you know, if there's a giant earthquake or something, I want to know what's cracking. Uh, I generally shy away from alerts on my phone, but I, you know, I want some local media there so I can know what's happening and uh so i imagine there are thousands if not tens of thousands of people across this second largest city of the united states who were greeted this week on their telephone with this tiny headline uh, that that certainly paints a certain picture as you read it right the shock value half of lausd students are chronically absent what's wrong with that district these, you know, this district must be failing all the kids. These teachers who are about to go on spring break, why do they get spring break when half the kids are absent all the time, right? This is this is what's happening. Not in my brain, but I'm imagining yeah. is happening in the brains of many people um, as they look down at their phone and get the little buzz, okay, or the little ping that pops up. And so what we're going to talk about today, Manuel, is this story, but also the larger issue, I think, is the weaponization of data. And the weaponization of data in particular as we uh, maybe forecast that we may see it um, over the next few months here as we start to get end of year data, in particular testing data, but also you know other end of year data um, from our school systems that is going to show in, in very stark quantitative terms the full manifestation of the quote-unquote learning loss that we have been, uh, you know, focused on uh, drilling into people's minds, um, you know, weaponizing politically in a variety of ways um, over the last couple of years. And so I thought this article was a great entry point into that conversation, right, that like um, we are at extremely high risk in my mind of living in an environment where we are about to receive a ton of data and it is going to be weaponized in exactly this kind of way or worse um, to, uh, to, to both cast aspersions on educators and schools and school systems for things that may or may not have been within their locus of control and also to feed into the sort of larger effort to undermine the legitimacy of public schooling as, a, as an institution. Um, and so this article, um, actually, when you read the text, I thought did a fairly balanced job of talking about the issue, which is attendance is uh, certainly been much more disrupted this year. And of course, the two years before that, than we then we would normally see. Right. And that is a concern because everybody knows if kids aren't at school, then they're certainly not going to learn what they're supposed to learn at school. Right. Or that's going to be very difficult to happen. Um, So totally a worthy topic to focus on. But there's a couple of issues I would take here. One is the term chronically absent. Okay. Nobody in the lay person world knows what chronic absence means. <laughs> Even a lot of educators don't really know what chronic absence means because you think chronic absence and you think it's like chronic disease or something, right? Like, oh, every, you know, I have arthritis and every day my joints hurt. So this must mean every day <laughs> these kids are absent. Well, chronic absenteeism could mean that. But in this school year, where in particular we had the Omicron surge that devastated our schools and communities uh, in January and February, many students are qualifying as chronically absent because they've missed spurts of this school year due to the pandemic, right? So they might have been home for you know five days because they had to quarantine, or they might have been home twice because they had a close exposure and then they actually got Omicron, or they had to stay home because someone at home had it and they couldn't come back to school or whatever it might be, right? Um, and that's a totally different thing than a kid in a family who are disengaged from school and staying home because They feel like school is not helpful to them or they're depressed or they, you know, didn't have clean clothes to wear that day or whatever it might be, right? And so I think there's some like uh, hiding of potential truths in a headline clickbait driven world that is likely going to, we're going to see manifestations of, oh, the kids are all this and this and that and it's bad, right? As opposed to a responsible nuanced conversation about, hey, We're coming out of a pandemic. We know the pandemic hurt virtually everything in our world. (laughs) People's mental health, economically, people's physical health, all of it, right? And so we're still recovering. We're likely to see some dips in certain data points, and we should approach them as indicators of how it's going and how we should respond, not indicators of where we should point our fingers and blame those lazy educators who just want to be on summer break all the time. So uh, Manuel, and that's my initial rant about this piece. I should stop and uh, hand it over to you for a more uh, um, balanced, uh, <laughs> thoughtful, uh, <laughs> something other than a rant perspective.
0: Fair and balanced perspective, Jeff, is that what we're about here? Fair and balanced. That's both sides. Got to look at both sides. Um, No, we're
1: definitely not doing that both sides business.
0: (laughs) We're just doing fair. There we go. (laughs) That
1: that ain't always got anything to do with balanced.
0: Yeah. So you made made a lot of great points here, Jeff. And yeah, I, I also assume that the author of this piece... Didn't necessarily um, get to decide on what the headline will be. At least that's what I hear from folks in in journalism about, you know, how how, what they write then gets sent off and then, you know, the paper itself or editors, whatever, decide on the headline and clickbait is is what everything's about these days. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of us simply don't take the time to like read through uh, the full article the full content and consider the, the you know, details and the nuance involved because you see the headlines and then you go ahead and, or people see the headlines and then they go ahead and make, uh, draw conclusions from it. And in this case, yeah, you are correct in the sense of we are going to be receiving a lot of headlines about the data that will be coming out from the school year and the traditional sort of data that gets talked about the most in education circles. Uh, we're talking test scores. We're talking attendance rate uh, rates. We're talking discipline rates. Those are all going to be looking really bad. Like, it's just going to look bad. That's just the reality of the pandemic. Like, attendance, of course, that data is already looking really bad, as this, uh, as this piece indicated and in, in discussed. Test scores, like, when we, at my school, when we come back from spring break, we are beginning our, our state testing. And I've already mentioned to students a couple of times about like, you know, when we get back from spring break, we'll be doing our, our testing. And, and, you know, so it's going to be some time before we get back to our, our, traditional content. And a lot of students are like, what testing, what testing? I'm like state testing. Like what, like they, they've been, you know, the pandemic has been so long and it's for them. And it's been so long since they've, you know, been in a classroom doing a state assessment that for a lot of them are like, wait, what they're, you know, trying to wrap their heads around, around that in that concept. And I think just nationally, that data is going to look, it's going to look really bad because the last thing that a lot of students are trying to do right now is put forth a lot of um, careful thought and consideration and effort into uh, state assessments that they perhaps do not see much value in or any value in. So I, I think a lot of that data also is going to generate some really not great headlines about the state of schools, and then of course discipline data. I mean, I think you know my school is no exception. We've had some issues on our campus that we simply didn't have before the pandemic in terms of um, just basic uh, basic incidents between students and just uh, things happening that really were very rare before the pandemic, but now are becoming um, or now seem to be much more common. And I've heard that from teachers from all across uh, all across California, for sure, and teachers across the nation, really about just things that they're experiencing on their campuses, on their school sites that um, are problems that they didn't see before the pandemic. So I think the discipline data, the attendance data, the test score data, those things are all going to look Pretty bad. And we as educators need to start thinking about how we are going to confront these negative headlines that start coming out because folks from all sides are going to be using this as proof that. Something needs to change in a not great way. So, folks who are already already the the ongoing war against public schools, the ongoing anti-CRT, the ongoing oh public schools they're quote unquote grooming our kids and, and turning them, uh, uh, trying to influence them into becoming gay or becoming trans. Like that's we're seeing a, a uptick in those conversations. All that stuff. That that whole crowd wants to dismantle public education as we know it. Period. So they're going to see all these headlines and see and say, see, proof that these public schools, uh, kids aren't even attending because the school is such a failure. The schools are failing to do this, failing to do that. And then folks on the other side, on the other quote unquote, on the other side, those classic reformer types are gonna see these headlines and, and say, see, proof that learning loss is real. We have to accelerate learning. We gotta do this, we gotta do that. We gotta get back to basics, back to uh, you know reading, writing, arithmetic, because look at, look at all this data and look at what it shows. So I think we're gonna see a lot of folks From all angles, all walks of life in this uh, education world that we live in, see these headlines and draw their own conclusions to fit their own um, narratives and their own agendas around public schools. And at the end of the day, we who teach in public schools, we who serve in public schools, and we who have the students' best interests in mind and at heart need to have a, a, a response to, to all of this and need to have a really big voice in what happens because traditionally, I, in my view of things, traditionally classroom teachers aren't really listened to and don't really have a lot of influence on the, the bigger discussions, the bigger policy discussions and what have you. And this is a time where really nobody understands what this looks like in front of them more than classroom teachers who served throughout the pandemic. And we need to make sure our voices are heard because stories like this, this you know, chronic absentee headline. Yeah, I've had a lot of students absent during the Omicron surge in particular. And most of those students are back. And we are doing our best. A lot of my students who have been struggling with getting to school consistently are dealing with homelessness, are dealing with the fact that the eviction moratorium has come to an end or is coming to an end. And like there's a lot going on that's not certainly not the students fault, certainly not my fault and certainly not the school's fault. And we need all hands on deck to address that. We need to do that and, and not just allow folks to just blame the schools, blame the school system and and shift us towards a more learning loss focused or a public schools are failing focused type of narrative. So yeah, man, it's, um, it's time to get ready for those discussions, man, because this data is coming out and it's not looking good. Yeah, so um,
1: I I really appreciate that perspective, Manuel. And the, a, a couple of things come come to mind for me. And w- there was a a comment in the article. I'm sorry, I don't have it right in front of me at, right this second. But one of the teachers that was interviewed talked about the gap this year. And it was an elementary teacher, and like in a normal year, she would have lots of students who had perfect attendance. And this year. Uh, you know, and, and on a normal day, there'd be like one or two kids absent, right? And this year, it feels like every day, there's like four or five students absent, and very few students who have perfect, who get the like, you know, award or whatever for perfect attendance. And then she noted, but of course, I don't have perfect attendance this year either, right? And, you know, I think it's like, we need to zoom out a little bit, right? One of the major disruptions of the pandemic this year was also teacher attendance. The staff was getting sick. So we had, you know, January and February were just rough because we had, you know, schools that I know of man well had as many or had as high as approaching 50% staff absences at times um, during that initial Omicron wave, right? So, you know, so so like... It's irresponsible, I guess is what I'm saying, to look at this kind of issue and just find the scandalous headline and not actually say, hey, this is a global pandemic that adversely impacted everything, and here's the effect it had on schools Okay, what should we do about it? Like, that should be the nature of conversation. I'm not suggesting we don't look at the data. I'm not suggesting it's not important. But I am suggesting the, uh, the orientation that we have towards the data is what's going to be critical and going to make or break whether we respond in these draconian, punitive kinds of ways or whether we respond in humanizing, thoughtful, you know, what kind of community and society are we trying to create? Sorts of ways. Um, And so that said, Manuel, I want to make a a prediction. Okay. And I will fully say I am neither uh, some kind of psychic who knows what the future Mm -hmm. (laughs) is going to be, nor do I think the the practice of making predictions is particularly wise for anyone to engage in. (laughs) But here we are, and it's a podcast and it's fun. So I'm going to make a a (laughs) couple of predictions, Manuel, that what we're going to see. Is that overall the uh, the chain when we get the data in June? In particular, I'm thinking state testing data. So here in California, that's the you know the Smarter Balanced Assessment, um, also known as the California Assessment of Student uh, Performance and Progress, CASP. Um, that students take a math and an ELA version of that, and they take a science version of that in certain in certain grades as well. So my prediction is. The the drop in scores is not going to be as horribly off the cliff as everyone thinks it might be, but it's going to be not great, and it's going to be most not great in schools where we know there already was the biggest gap, right? So effectively, right. the outcome is going to be the gaps, the, the quote-unquote achievement gaps are going to be greater come June of 2022 than they were in June of 2019. The last year we had a kind of complete data set um, of this particular assessment, right? We will probably see some mirroring of that from other data points, attendance being an example. We talked about here, graduation rate might be affected that way. Although my hunch is graduation will be less affected because we took a lot of mitigation measures against kids just failing everything when they were disconnected. Uh, from school as a result of the pandemic that I think will, will protect us from some of that. But I think that's the general trend where we're going to see. That would be my, my guess. And we're going to see a huge uptick in clickbaity headlines like this one from the LA Times in the bipartisan consensus in Washington and in most state legislatures, uh, around education, which is we have to invest more and more in testing and more and more in the narrowing of the curriculum around math and ELA, and that we have to double down on some of the things that, that we have tried in the past that didn't work well and that we know are not actually the right path for us to go on, things like what we saw during No Child Left Behind when it was, you know, uh, let's, let's dramatically double down on testing. Let's make sure that um, kids are getting double blocks of ELA and math because we got to get those scores up. Let's give you these after-school test prep programs that, you know, uh, conveniently the same companies who run the tests and who lobby Congress then get paid to do the test prep companies or their subsidiaries do. Um, that we're going to see the push in that direction. I worry that we're going to kind of fall off a cliff and go right back down the No Child Left Behind rabbit hole that we, you know, that, that we went down in the early 2000s. Um, and I think we have a window of time to, like, mount some defense against it. Um, and I, I hope that the, the path we choose to ta- to take instead for me at least would not be let's ignore the data altogether it would be like let's look at the data and let's think about what this says about what our kids have been through about what our school systems have been through about the you know some of the harm that was done as a result of the pandemic And how we should respond to create the kind of school environments, the learning environments, the conditions for success for teachers that we actually need now that everybody's been through all this mess in order to see learning improve for young people, in order to see the teacher shortage improve um, in our schools and school systems. Right. That is what I, I it's not too late for us to get there. I'm just worried. Given my prediction that we're not going to get, <laughs> we're not going to get there, and we're going to allow ourselves to go down this really destructive kind of path. So, Manuel, do you? I don't know if you would care to respond to my totally unscientific, unwise practice of making predictions, uh, or if you have any predictions of your own uh, on this that you would care to share.
0: Yeah, well, I I would just say. I hope it doesn't end up being that way. I think that's the way a lot of us fear it's going to go, that we're going to see the doubling down, tripling down on on all the things that we experienced during No Child Left Behind that, that have been proven not to work, really. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't go that way. And I'm going to remain hopeful that that will not be where we head. As I see more and more university systems walk away from the SAT and the ACT, I think that our Cal State system uh, here in California just like officially, officially, officially said um, they're done with requiring SATs. Um, as we see more and more school systems do that. And in this case, you know, this attendance headline that we just talked about, it sounds like the California Department of Ed is um, going to, I don't remember the specific details, so I could be wrong here, but there was some discussion in there about taking average attendance rate over, over three years so that this year's specific attendance doesn't um, harm the district too much. As As more and more places start considering ways to do things differently, I hope that that's a sign that when it comes down to the confluence of all this data and all these headlines, that we will continue to try to think of ways to to think differently about these problems. So I'm going to remain hopeful that this is not going to lead to more testing. In fact, maybe this will um, inspire folks to decrease the emphasis on testing and increase the emphasis on um, really addressing the needs that students have as they are continuing to endure this pandemic. And from social emotional needs, of course, to just like feeling that school is a, a, a welcoming place for them, even if they missed however many days of school, even if they uh, missed however many assignments, whatever, but that there is a path in the school system for them to to uh, find success. Like I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to be the case. I know that's I think the, the fear that a lot of us have is what your prediction that you just laid out. And I think if that did happen, I wouldn't be fully surprised, but I'm just hopeful that we've seen enough, enough movement from, from traditionally oppressive type systems and, in, and in, uh, folks at the top to show that maybe it will be different this time around. So that's, that's my hope. That's, uh, it's not a prediction; it's just a hope, um, because otherwise, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really see. I mean, the students I have now, and and particularly the teachers that I interact with, and of course, you know, I guess that's heavily biased and colored towards you know the folks who are in the circles that that we're in, Jeff, in terms of folks who you know are part of these conversations that we have on the show, the type of guests that we have, and uh, the types of content that we interact with, um, you know. But in any case, looking at those teachers that I know. Uh, I don't feel that there's an appetite among them for for more testing and more, you know, getting back to those benchmark tests and getting back to all that stuff. So I just don't think they would be receptive to it in a, in a way that like, would allow the system just to revert back to that super high stakes testing type type of feel um, from back in the day. I think educators have had enough with that, and I for sure students have had enough, and parents as well. That whole opting out of of testing, I've seen more and more posts about that, about you know webinars here and there of how to opt your kid out of state testing. I've seen more of that than I ever saw in the past. So um, that leads me to believe that we're going to find a way through this that's more humanizing than that uh, doubling down on all of the things that people really, really don't like and enjoy about school. So we shall see, though. We shall see.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we shall. I, you know, um, I, am, I am hoping inside my gut that we make good choices as a profession and as a, uh, as a policymaking apparatus around those of us in this profession uh, based on the, on the data this spring. And I, th- I think we're going to need some help. To avoid that, we're going to need responsible reporting uh, from the press. We're going to need some uh, responsible engagement with that data and principled thinking about what it means and what to do from educator organizations, from unions, from, you know, the the kind of sea of nonprofits around education. Um, and, you know, we're going to need community groups and stuff to say, whoa, 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 pump the brakes and all this. Like, we're going to add twice as many tests to the schedule next year as we had this year, you know, or we're just going to take kids out of gym and art and give them extra time in reading. You know, we're going to need some, some principled. No, (laughs) we're not doing that. We're keeping kids in fun, diverse, joyful spaces that explore the fullness of their humanity in school. And, you know, if we want to add tutoring programs and stuff on top of that, that's cool. We can, you know, we can do that, but we're not going to have you just sit and read in reading class all day. Right. Um, we're not going to just further segregate kids within schools by, you know, how your uh, how your state test scores were last year. So uh, I think it's going to take some work. And I, I would just say. You know, hey, if you're out there and you're in this space, whether you're a parent, whether you're a community group person, whether you're an educator, a policymaker, whether you have some influence with any of those audiences, like the time is now to start the conversation so that when those attempts come in June to be like, look how bad all of these kids and families are. And if they only value their education, blah, blah, you know, that we are like ready to nip that crap in the bud.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. Amen to that for sure. Um, yeah, I, I believe this will be an ongoing conversation uh, in particular, <laughs> uh, whenever during the summer that the, uh, you know, test score data comes out here in California. Um, I think we're going to see a, a huge uptick into uh, in conversations and what that means for next school year. So we shall see. We shall see. And um, with that being said, folks, um, actually, I, I, I should have mentioned at the top of this, aside from um, spring break starting at least in, in my district. It's also the start of, of Ramadan. So shout out to all the ALTA family members who are Muslim, uh, shout out to all of y'all and, uh, wish you the best of course, uh, throughout this month. And Jeff, for our, our next episode, we have a guest that's coming to the show and I'm not sure Jeff, if you've heard much about this thing, I guess it's a, I guess it's a framework or something that, um, uh, evidently, is is being used in schools. Um, critical, the- crit- critical race theory. Critical race theory. That's, what it, is. that's what it is. Yes, CRT. hearing a lot about that, Jeff. Not not sure how familiar you are with that, but you know, we discussed it obviously at length on the show uh, through various angles in terms of this current cultural war and how it's impacting K twelve. And, Jeff, I got to give you credit because you came across a professor in Mississippi a law professor in Mississippi specifically at the University of Mississippi which is of course the flagship university in Mississippi who teaches the state's only course that is solely devoted to critical race theory and this professor uh, super dope educator and you know for all the talk about critical race theory being something that is is reserved to like law school classes and this and that and you know of course Jeff we've uh we discussed that element of it um in the past like <laughs> You went out and found a law professor in a state with a long troubled history with um, race and racism and white supremacy and and, and racial violence, uh, who's teaching right in the thick of it in a state that also is uh, recently or has passed a anti, you know, their version of an anti-CRT bill. So we're going to have Dr. Yvette Butler join us on all of the above to discuss like For real, for real, what is critical race theory um, as a law professor, but also her take on this whole uh, culture culture war and you know, her, her view of its impact on K-12 and also her own teaching in law school. So that is going to be a episode that folks, you do not want to miss. You do not want to miss. Um, it should come out in about a week. However, I am about to travel for spring break. So it might, it might be a tad bit late. Uh, nope. No promises there. So I'm not going to give you the, the specific date, but it'll be out soon. Dr. Yvette Butler will be joining us on our next full episode of all of the above. Uh, definitely cannot wait for that. Jeff, anything else before we get out of here today?
1: Oh, man. Well, I'm so excited for that episode uh, with Professor Butler. Um, I mean, what an amazing opportunity, right? And she's, she is, uh, as they say, a beast. So uh, it's going to be a great conversation, folks. Definitely subscribe if you have not already, because you want to get that alert on your phone um, for that episode. And and then I would just say uh, Ramadan Mubarak to our to our Muslim uh, brothers and sisters and, and family out there. Um, and, you know, thanks for joining us today, folks.
0: Yeah. All right, folks, that about does it for this week's passing period. Remember, we love y'all. Now get to class.